All right, sorry people out there, but we're going to hopefully have a lively discussion. Um, the uh, order of people sitting here is not exactly the order on here, but you might be able to figure it out. Yeah, I could just change it, but I might be able to figure it out. And, uh, yeah, sorry, yeah, don't, don't move around. Now, the, the other thing, a couple of, a couple of things here. Um, no one up there has amplification, so, so they all have to speak so everyone can hear. Out there, no one has amplification, so you have to speak also uh, loudly. However, apparently, the people out in video land can hear you when you're out there, so that we will not have to repeat the comments. So that if you have a comment, like you want to be part of this panel and you're not happy you weren't chosen, you, got the you, can, you can do it. They, they can hear you if you speak loudly and clearly. Okay. I've got half a dozen emails from folks yesterday saying, I can't hear the audience. But they put up this big new microphone. Well, we'll see. Okay, so, so that's what, and, and they tried it out and told me, if you speak loudly and clearly, they can hear you. Ira? I watched this morning, you can't hear the audience. Oh, all right. Exception is Ken King. So everybody asked their questions and comments can Okay. Founders can be heard, no one else. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So anyway, here I, I would start with some ground rules, uh, just so we know. Uh, and I will do my best, since I'm the moderator, to hold people to these ground rules. It's tough. Um, I'll try. Doesn't mean I'll succeed, but I'll try. Anyway, there are three questions, and they're going to be displayed separately up there. We'll go around the table. Everybody gets two minutes to answer. Right. So that we try to keep the initial answers short. Uh, when all the answers have been given, each participant has the opportunity to question the other participants. Hopefully, you'll have some good attack questions for these. And then those responses are also limited to two minutes. And then anytime you want to participate out there, you know, raise your hand, and we'll have you be part of the panel. And uh, no PowerPoints except this one. So I apologize if people had prepared PowerPoints, and I changed the ground rules uh, slightly. So three questions. Thanks to Paul Bergen for uh, helping to articulate these. Um, the, I'm going to display them all now, and then I'll put one up there, and then that will be the point of discussion. Uh, so you'll all see it, and they won't. Oh, yeah, oh, you can write. That's a good idea. He'll get the uh, video on there, and then they can watch it there. <laughs> Uh, so, number one, what are the most important characteristics of CMSs in meeting the needs of an institution? In what ways do CMSs, as they exist and are conceived of today, need to evolve in order to better meet pedagogic and institutional needs? So that's the first question. Um, second one is, how do you see the future of open source CMS systems that emerge from the academic sector as opposed to commercial systems? Which sector do you see as most able to sustain progress in the CMS evolution? If you had it your way in a utopia where adequate resources were available to support your decision, would you build a CMS, adapt one from another university, or buy a commercial one? So. Well, it's, this is the way you make three questions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, per person. No, no, per, per number. Yes, Per number. And third one, will we be talking about CMSs five years from now, or will we be discussing some other type of software that has emerged from what are now our portals, uh, student information systems, or other ERP systems? Or on the other way around, will portals and other systems emerge from our CMSs? Okay, so first question. 
uh, what are the most important characteristics of CMSs? I mean, the needs of an institution, in what ways do, you, do CMSs as they exist and are conceived of today need to evolve in order to meet uh, better meet pedagogical and institutional needs? Okay. Start with whoever wants to. If no one wants to, we start. is a piecemeal ecology. And then we're going to have to tackle the cross-realm stuff. There's going to be people from Washington.
want to sort of go a little bit further. Um, uh, a lot of folks are coming to me uh, and asking the question, well, we, we have an existing CMS, maybe it's a vendor-related, web, a web-based CMS, a vendor-related product, or maybe a homegrown product, um, that's reaching end of life. What do we do? And I think what, what I'm really beginning to believe, and those of us working on the OKI project are beginning to believe, is that, is that the statement is that, that web-based applications, that web-based or browser-based applications are actually reaching end of life for what we need to be doing pedagogically in higher education. Uh, this is why we're starting to show client-side applications. I'm not saying that browser-based computing is, is end of life. And browser-based computing for delivering content and, and, and that sort of thing is, is absolutely um, uh, uh, best practice. But what we're trying to do with it, I think you know, a number of years ago, we all started getting into this mindset that, well, the browser is going to become our operating system for the applications of the future. This is like a 10-year-old idea. Um, and, 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 it's, and, it's, and it's pushed forward and we've done some interesting things with it, but we haven't gotten there. And, 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 and the vision that we have not gotten to, if anybody remembers Knowledge Navigator, right? Apple's old thing, Knowledge Navigator, which had tablet-based computing with real live applications where, as, where you see this, this, this professor who's putting together a, 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 a class, putting together content, brings up uh, an agent that goes and calls a colleague, and the colleague says, oh, I have some content you might want, and shoves it into there. And I think when the web came al along, we said, well, that's how we're going to get to that Knowledge Navigator. The you know, browser-based computing is going to get us there, and it hasn't. And then what you're seeing now is um, uh, uh, not only in, 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 in applications for education, but even more so in, in, the, in, the, in commercial applications of other domains, uh, things like the types of chat tools that are, that are becoming available now, things like um, uh, that, that world viewer application, I forget what it's called, that, 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 that you can buy for $75 that, they, that the, uh, the news agencies use to hone in on, on Iraq so you can see cities and stuff. You know, it's showing us that there's a whole world of applications out there that are not Um, Browser-based, simple, <coughs> relatively sim simple systems uh, meet part of those needs. Uh, I was just at a what application-based uh, interfaces that could uh, handle more um, complex interactions with the user. I think are important and, and could be extremely valuable here. I was just at a a review where um, one of the uh, tools was uh, a. Um, uh, a, a, it was an FTP server, multiple FTP server, and you could move things back and forth. But it was it was kind of clunky because it was web based and you couldn't do drag and drop. And, but you could punch a button, and Java Web Start cranked up. A Java application was installed locally. It was plugged into that, and you could have all the features you had with your OS. I think those are extremely valuable. The idea of pedagogy with respect to this, um, it pushes in that direction and pushes um, flexibility and customizability of these systems. One of the things that we get out of portals is not only aggregation, but also uh, the personalization of not just content, but also some of the, the tools that are available. I think those are extremely valuable. The idea that the system um, meets institutional needs, too, I think is um, real important. The, uh, of course, at Michigan, the idea that we have, um, or that we're focusing on and working around is that pedagogy uh, is deeply involved with the research practice of the faculty. 
and there needs to be there need to be increasing ways to bring that directly into the experience of the students. We've got questions from the panel to others on the panel. Since everybody seems to agree. He like these guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, where's your attack dog? Yeah, well, what questions right. out there? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> With respect to the, the need for a, a richer uh, user interface, um, there appear to be probably today more than a dozen companies <coughs> created sort of mini industry of uh, thin clients that operate within the browser and give you the functionality, drag and drop, and everything else that you possibly want, usually using something like XQL, Zool, to allow you to find user interactions. Do you dismiss that as a, as a, as a, as a reasonable path? I mean, do you think we have to have dedicated clients uh, that are operating outside of the browser in order to have what is needed to meet pedagogic and other institutional needs? I think we should be able to make both choices. Uh, I think there's a lot of people out there who are familiar with building Java applications, for instance, and, uh, and working in that environment, uh, and we should be able to integrate those. If you're uh, using one of these thin clients, um, there's you know the learning curve in getting up and the question of do you have a community of developers working with you. I wouldn't by any means um, rule them out. Uh, it's just a question of what you can get people to work with. And I think it's important to look at what's happening um, externally in, in the non-educational marketplace. Uh, if you look at some of the very interesting applications that have been coming out recent, recently, this, this World Viewer, which I wish I remember the name of it, uh, a digital globe or something like that. Um, you know, uh, I, I know the friends of friends I have who, who are sailing enthusiasts who want to watch the America's Cup use an application called Virtual Spectator. Right? These are applications that require um, lots of processing power. That, that, that require high bandwidth connections where XML may not be the right data format, say. for So I, I think we're going to be, we need to be pushing that envelope. Our faculty can be pushing the envelope, but the types of things that we want to do with applications to the point where we are going to come back and, 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 and really begin to revitalize the, uh, the, the true desktop. Uh, uh, but I think the next few questions will we'll start addressing how we might do that. And I'd just like to yeah. say, you know, Ira, the, the reason the browser has been so attractive to us is that it enabled us to get around the kinds of platform-specific sort of application development we had to do for the different desktop operating systems. But I think, it, you know, if you look around at the various institutions and the amount of effort we're expending on trying to make sure things work in all the various browser flavors, it's starting to rival what we had to do for the various desktop flavors anyway. Bobby? Yeah, I also think we need to look at uh, institutional needs on a much wider scale. I'll give an example. <clears throat> One of the things that I see coming out is the need for more and more virtual communities. Now, if you look at the world of gaming engines, uh, you know, <clears throat> there are gaming companies that are trying to create engines which would allow half a million online users to work simultaneously. Now, that kind of thing can certainly impact what, you know, what we want to do with education online. Uh, another example would be, you know, handling documents. So companies like Documentum, you know, the so-called software content management. Third example would be convenience, and I was impressed by the Yogi example that Brad talked about, because convenience is something we're looking at. So, you know, I, I think we do need to expand beyond just looking at the learning management system side. Look at what are the needs and what are the best 
technology that we should look at. Ken? Oh, I was. I guess I was going to sort of go where Bobby was going. I just think that if we look at the young people, that we don't know what the pedagogical needs of tomorrow are right now, and tomorrow is coming very quickly. I just watch my neighbors' kids, and they hang out on these games, and most of their learning is in this virtual world, in the gaming world, where they take on another character, and they learn by being that person. And I think you've got to figure out. Well, I think the faculty are going to start figuring out, or somebody is that this is one of the one of the new ways of learning and that we need to bring that into our environment. It's a real challenge, it's a big challenge. It's not, you know, it's, it's gonna require a lot more talent than we put into this Jack? Um, one of the fundamental things I think that, that we're gonna have to wrestle with in terms of the evolution of the CMS is whether or not that systems thing is really what it should be. Um, the idea of a course management system, I mean, again, it's, it's turning out to be a convenient framework for an amalgam of tools that the faculty use as part of their you know, bag of tricks that they use in the classroom. And that is actually something that has been, in terms of the adoption of the of Blackboard and our Canvas, a key factor. It's not really reviewing, viewing this as a system, but as a way for the faculty to pick and choose through a common environment different types of tools and activities that the students can use and also be a convenient container, if you will, for uh, content and other sorts of experiences. And so I think, you know, as we look at this, I think the notion of CMS is probably going to go away in favor of the idea of a way of, of bringing together a collection of things not unlike the chalk tray that's behind you, which contains a piece of chalk and eraser, maybe some colored chalk if you're lucky. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I mean, and you know, where where the notion of the CMS really starts to get in the way is when you want to start making that stuff available in different contexts and you want to say, you know, my you know, my staff want to do a survey for other staff for, you know, what the union feels or, you know, the president wants to do a dis discussion with alumni on this, that, and the other thing. Why should we have to force that into the container of a course, which we always end up doing in these package systems? Fred? Uh, a couple of questions for questions. The faculty blocked up pedestrian aspects of teaching, whether it's uh, a mimeograph, and then a Xerox machine, and then whatever the next thing was. So I think for CMS evolution, we need to continue to very much support uh, economically and ease of use pedestrian aspects of teaching. There's a lot of things that were talked about. The faculty are trying to get the faculty to do these certain things. But when the value proposition is there and leveraging faculty's time as they perceive it, then CMS adoption and such moves uh, pretty readily along. So two components to that. CMS needs to continue to economically uh, uh, serve pedestrian activities of teaching while also be extensible for innovation. Because the faculty are continuing to move in every conceivable direction, in many inconceivable directions, regarding innovation in their pedagogy. And it's a disservice when those things get done by onesie twosie activities off somewhere, and then there's no connectivity back to the core of their work. So extensibility of the CMS for innovation is also very important. And the last point I would make, there's an article today in CMAP by Jeff Hawkins from Handspring and formerly from Paul. that makes an interesting assertion. We spoke briefly yesterday in mobility. Uh, I think many of us today, we conceive of our handhelds as they complement to our PC and desktop computing environment. And he argues that perhaps in the near term that, that may be turned on a tick, that our PCs and notebooks 
they become a complement to our handguns. And if you know the first place from Nokia and other places, you run around with old Nokia communicator bricks that are very capable, small devices. I think we have to think a lot about our undergraduate populations running around handheld mobile devices that may increasingly be their primary point of interacting with a lot of these camera services, including things that come from the CMS. And that's a whole different way of thinking about, do you know, well, they have 1024 by 768 to do something. Yeah, I think if we could have that core set of tools that we, if we can layer on top of that the methods of delivery, whether it's a web-based, whether it's handheld, whether it's a, a full-blown desktop application, and, and if we can make it easy enough for faculty to choose what's going to work best for them in their use of that tool, it's going to go a long way. Uh, first, a comment to uh, Oren's comment. One of uh, uh, faculty members always points out that uh, these course management systems, as we buy them, uh, present low thresholds for entry, but very high thresholds for exit. <laughs> Good point. Uh, the other, other uh, thing that I actually wanted to point out, if I look at the question, uh, we have lumped pedagogic and institutional needs. I'm going to assert, as always, that pedagogic needs are personal, department-dependent, discipline-dependent, whereas institutional needs are different. They have to do with skills, you know, those kinds of things. And part of the characteristic looking ahead is how do you balance these things that we call pedagogic needs because they are going to change to be a very, very community person. Whereas institutional needs have to do with efficiency, scale, and total cost of ownership over time. Sir? So, from a technical perspective, um, uh, I, I, I think that there, there's, for any of you who were at the Blackboard meeting, um, where, where I spoke with um, with the Blackboard folks about their future, um, one of the challenges that that I asserted was, you know, if 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 if, if you as a as Blackboard or as WebCT or, or whomever, um, really think your product is worth what you're charging for it. You need to stop marketing it as, or, or you need to, to help the, the customers understand it not as a, not, a, not as a simple application for education, but as real institutional infrastructure. And I think the path for some of these companies who, 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 who you know, and, and Blackboard says this and WCT says, you know, we're, we're creating educational infrastructure. They're not really, you know, they're creating proprietary infrastructure that, that, that works within the Blackboard or WebCT stovepipe. Um, I think many institutions would be very happy to spend $100,000 or more on a product from a company like Blackboard if it was open in the sense that it, 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 it conformed to the, the standards, the types of standards we all care about, that it truly was the type of thing that we could plug other things into or could plug easily into 
the rest of our, our, our institution. Um, and, and I think this notion of, of splitting out the functionality from from the underlying guts and and, 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 and allowing those to live as separate products uh, uh, could really begin to build a whole new type of marketplace. Uh, Blackmore is trying to do it in a very proprietary way with building blocks, right? But but I I, I, I think it would be best for all of us if, if, if these companies would start to, to move down this other path. And we're talk, not talking necessarily open source, but we're at least talking you know build build open uh, uh, architectural and and uh, infrastructural uh, and infrastructure products. <coughs> Uh, that we could put a stamp of approval on and say, yep, we think that looks like an infrastructure product, not just a learning application. And I would say I, I don't have an, uh, an, uh, an answer to the question. I think that it's a, it's a requirement of open source systems in the near future that they be easy to install, that they not require huge amounts of overhead, and that they um, have the kind of uh, functionality that we find in commercial systems. I, I, I'm this is a big experiment, right? We don't know what's going to happen in the next three years. And the next three years are really an important period for a lot of the things that we've been talking about. This is something that was brought up yesterday. A year from now, uh, we're going to know, was there a coalescence of uh, component builders around the OKI specs? Uh, what Are there tools out there? Are, is Chef something that I can take and just drop in? Is uh, the CourseWorks uh, system from Stanford something uh, that half a dozen or a dozen schools are using already? Is that something that, that meets the standards? And do we have, did, did we reach the goal uh, of really being able to build components so that I can take something from CourseWorks and run it in Chef? I can take something that's OKI compatible and run it somewhere else. Have we got the display issues and everything else well enough figured out that we actually have some real sense of components there. Um, and I don't know, right? But I think that things have to go in that direction if we're going to have the kinds of flexibility and the ability to innovate, which is really the fundamental requirement of personalization. Um, if faculty want to do something different, they have to be able to do it. Uh, it would be nice if they could do it uh, differently easily, right? I also uh, think that one of the things that we um, don't recognize enough often is the fact that uh, CMSs have been an introduction to many faculty of these kinds of technologies. Um, they have the CMS activity on campuses and the use of them by faculty have pulled a lot of faculty into these kinds of tools. We hear this from faculty all the time and see it that it helps them increase their human capital in technology. Uh, and that's something that these systems have to be able to do. The low threshold for entry has to remain uh, like damn near zero. Phil? If I could uh, reinforce a couple of comments already made and add to them, I think that comments that uh, a lot of what the CMS has done today is to automate average tasks, routine tasks, logistical issues. Uh, that's the concrete return that we have seen. We have faculty however, believe that has made a difference in their ability to teach. So first point, automation of traditional practice has been successful. There's a lot of technology going on today with simulation and tools and other things that are not CMS related. So we, I'm not trying to ignore that, but from the CMS point of view, it's largely automation. We've also heard several comments, Andy's and Serge's among them, about the restructuring of higher education. 
Right now, the CMS is a way of taking the way we have been teaching and applying information technology to those methods, making them more efficient. Uh, I think there is a, a big question for us is, what would happen if you really rethought higher education in an entirely new IT-based environment? We heard comments about that if indeed the handheld becomes uh, the, the way the market goes. Amy's pointing out our students want from us things. Are we going to be a consumer-led society in higher ed? Or traditionally, the sage told us what it meant to be an astronomer. This is what it means to be an astronomer. There's no chance that CMS is restructuring education along those lines, in my view. CMS is helping us deal with the, the world of higher education the way it is today, and to the extent that we continue to work this way, we will build this infrastructure that will still be here and have effects three or five years from now. But there's a parallel track separate from the CMS. But hopefully, Phil, the CMS won't get in the way you know, when you have the faculty member that wants to do, you know, the unthinkable, run a course that doesn't, isn't, isn't tied to our semester boundaries, you know, or isn't tied to our single institution like Sandy was talking about. And, and so that's where we need to get to with the evolution of these tools. Jack. I think it would be useful to take a little bit of an economic modeling look at, at, at this whole problem and, and then look at the constituencies that we're talking about. It just seems to me that if we look at the constituents of, of the Common Solutions Group and other innovative research-oriented universities, that in the long run, commercial CMSs are not going to be the answer for us. Right? And I say that because the market's too thin. And if you look at what it needs to keep a blackboard or a web CP alive and afloat, They've got to look at a broad market, and we talked a lot yesterday about standards. They've got to get to standards so that their product can be used by literally thousands of, of institutions. And where are the thousands of institutions? Well, K through 12, we've got them. Uh, you start moving into community colleges and, 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 uh, and teaching colleges and so on, then you've got a few thousand. But if you look at commercial uh, army and you know, those kinds of training kinds of applications, then you're in the big markets. I think the pressures are going to push them more and more towards those, you know, let me call them cookie cutter. I don't mean that disparagingly. I mean from a, from a, you know, a support, a marketing, a viability of being there in five or ten years. That's where their market just has to evolve to. The notion of having a really rich product that's going to support the kind of needs that we're talking about in the institutions that we have here cannot come from a company that's going to be commercially viable. I'm not even sure in our own institutions we can agree exactly what is the right thing. So the answer that I think really is, call it open source, call it you know, OKI kind of framework, we've got to have that framework that allows for the innovation, supports these kinds of things, and, 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 and makes the automation, so we'll say, of the simple tasks easy. It does those kind of things, but allows that, that innovation. And, and I think that's that's the boat that we're in uh, as, a, as a CSG uh, group of constituents. I don't think that the other guys are going to bail us out. We've got to solve these things ourselves. Clearly, we can't all afford to develop everything by ourselves. So coming together, solving the, the problems, and finding a place for the companies as well, though, that 
value-added support, perhaps. They take the open source, they put it together, they package it, they provide support. Hosting services. Community colleges, small colleges, they may not even have the facility to install something like this. So I think there is room there for, for companies to provide service and certainly going to the larger training army or whatever. But they're not going to drive the innovation. We have to be driving the innovation. I, I, I have a... Another twist on that, but it's also my answer to to three, so I don't want to give it out now. Where's <laughs> <laughs> an overlapping? <laughs> Great so far. Are there other comments on this one? As much as evolution, uh, meeting pedagogic, some fantastic responses. Look forward to Chuck's uh, evaluation of this. Uh, summary of this at the end. Any other comments on this or continue the discussion? I think we should just look at the same. We'll, 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 okay, this will continue. Okay. Before you leave, one thing I haven't heard is how does this tie back to the feeling of warm fuzziness you get from supported applications, which to put Serge on the spot was one of your. Doesn't that tie in here? This is the second question. That, that, was one, that was the one thing I was talking about, is that if, like Linux, so Red Hat. So there's a free version you don't want support, and if you want support, there's a company that supports it, and you pay for it. So I think if we can model things after that kind of thing, then people that want support and get warm fuzzies from that pay for it. So is the second question. And, and that's, of course, what Jack just touched on and, and, and others have mentioned, but we might want to engage this one a little farther. Uh, that's the open source versus commercial question. You know, what can evolve for us? And, and uh, how would you do it if you, if you had all the support you needed and, you know, you could, you could start from, from scratch is one of my favorite thoughts about this uh, exercises. Uh, or, or how would you advance from that? So we get everybody up here. Um, and then we'll go back out to the audience again. Uh, well, I, I was just thinking, I was just thinking about the warm fuzzies, and um, and thinking about the. Uh, I w there were several of us in this room who were at a, a a portal meeting a couple weeks ago that Barry Walsh put together from Indiana, and um, you know, and a lot of the discussion in that room was about was about the integration of portals and ERP systems and and the feeling I had in the room from the people from campuses who have spent a lot of pain and energy going through large ERP implementations over the last few years is that they don't have a lot of warm fuzzies about a commercial supported system. Yeah. So, um, you know, I would love to be able to buy small targeted supported applications from companies large or small that really stood behind them and had a f real sense of what it meant to integrate them into my environment. Um, so far, I haven't seen that kind of economy develop in any sector, but you know, hope springs eternal in my breast anyway. Sandy? Um, I think I've addressed a lot of this already, but the economic realities of today, I think, really drive us towards working with each other on the innovation part. And also drive commercial companies away from innovation. That they're going to be targeting a standard thing that they can get the biggest market out of. So again, you know, some kind of consortial approach that allows us to drive the innovation but partners with 
companies that can then come in and provide um, either tools that they've developed towards those standards or the support or the hosting or any other number of options that would give them um, participation in this and an ability to make money. Um, maybe taking some of some of the consortial stuff and then making it private and doing value add. I think there's a lot of models there, but unless we're driving the innovation, I don't think it's going to go where we want it to. Yeah. Um, yeah, I again, in agreement with all of this. Um, I, I don't like to get into black and white arguments between open source and proprietary. Um, I think there's always going to be room for both. Um, uh, and I think that's a life cycle sort of thing. Uh, uh, as you look at the, 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 the fringe, the leading edge of what, of what technology is doing, you're going to find companies who have very interesting applications. Maybe they're um, gaming engines or, or other sorts of things that, that, that for proprietary reasons they might not want to make open source. But there might be things that those that those tools are doing that um, uh, that we do want to make sure are hooking into open source systems. And that's the idea behind um, uh, behind trying to push specifications and 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 standards. So I think where I've, I've always seen the the value is in is in these these open sorts of standards, open sorts of specs, and really trying to push the envelope on that. And I think that's part of the innovation that from higher education we can bring. Um, I think it's been said a few times already, but but we're we're an application sector that is really at the forefront. Um, uh, our the customers in higher education, you know, they're sitting in this room. Uh, you 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 look at a lot of other application sectors, and the customers aren't as mature technically as as we are. So as a customer base, we can actually drive some some very interesting things, and 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 I think we need to produce those as as open specifications uh, moving toward open standards. Um, so that we can play in both worlds. I don't want to be an either-or. You know, we, 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 we certainly would like there to be open source products. We're certainly going to build open source products, but we also want to be able to interoperate with, uh, with what might be very interesting uh, proprietary uh, things that are out there. As far as who can, who can best uh, 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 support it, I, I, again, I think for our particular application sector, that's going to be a community where, where the community includes the vendors, and we need to figure out how to get there. Yeah. Same kind of thing. Um, this is going to be a heterogeneous environment. It's not an either-or uh, proposition. With the the uh, model is changing, though, to the extent that open source systems are becoming much larger and much more widely dispersed and adopted. And commercial uh, companies are going to have to figure out how to build components to uh, and how to use open standards, not just making their own APIs open, but dealing with questions of how do I get this functionality to work in somebody else's system. I think that's part of the answer, uh, uh, at least my answer to the question about how do I see the future of open source CMS systems. We're going to have a mixed culture, and I don't think that uh, it's, uh, it's not going to be one or the other. There's going to be, in the next few years, the emergence of a thriving open source community, uh, both for support, for component construction, for framework uh, environments. And out of that will then spin um, commercial entities, uh, the red hats of whatever, uh, for the frameworks, for the component houses, for um, support. And those kinds of things will allow people to pick and choose what their particular culture, uh, depending on how, what level of risk they're willing to, to manage, 
the people that they uh, have to answer to, the kinds of questions that they ask, and what their own interest in innovation is, uh, it'll, uh, that is the context in which people will be able to make their decisions. Any questions for the panel? You want to challenge it? Aha, good. Hands out here. John. <laughs> At the risk of being burned as a heretic, I'd like to point out that we're not always the leaders in innovation. And sometimes when we turn to our commercial partners and say, innovative, what we really mean is customized our way. And that's what really drives them crazy. And we are very heterogeneous. There are places where we're innovative. But oftentimes, if you want to make the economic argument, they're very interested in what's truly innovative. What they're not interested in doing is rewriting code simply so Harvard can look slightly different than Yale, which looks slightly different than Princeton in terms of justifying the text. So we have to be careful not to brand the commercials as, you know, they don't innovate, they're not interested in the innovative space. Absolutely. A lot Inno of real right. Innovation happens in all the sectors. Great. I, I guess I want to follow up with that. We love to cascade the vendors so they're not being but if you look at the calculus courses in our institutions, all of them will be taught exactly the same way from one textbook. We're categorically and absolutely unwilling to go down the path that we do the absolutely efficient thing to sort of take this huge benefit off of us, and then we run around and sort of cast together. So we've got to be very careful about this. Make sure them do open source, but we're not unwilling, we're not willing to do any of this. Then we're going to do a brief survey and all negate them. How many people here are using Linux right now? On the machine in front. On the machine in front. Okay, so notice the open source adoption. <laughs> I don't think that's correctly posed. I mean, I'm not, I'm, my open source, my open source adoption has nothing to do necessarily with what's on my desktop. My point is that we make a big deal about how open source is wonderful and should be open and otherwise they're evil. Yet in many cases, yeah, drop the evil part. Case. Yeah, I don't think anyone said evil. Yeah. <laughs> Just put that out. We're um, <laughs> supposed to get something going here, right? <laughs> And I guess just to check our text, so, I mean, CMS is our profoundly conservative, and what we have in here is that is that's a scene we drive innovation, and that, that I think we have to talk about. Variations in the look and feel of CMSs are not about innovation. Um, yeah. I, I was just going to sort of add another element of, 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 of this question. I mean, I mean, may not really be projecting, projecting properly where the next generation systems are likely to come from. I mean, my sense is, and, and you know, I, I pray every night that the kids just let me get to retirement before, before they send me out to pasture, and I have some value to them, that most everything that's happened in software that's useful to us, that's been impactful to us, hadn't been done in the vendor community, hadn't been done in universities, some of it's been done in universities, but when it's been done in universities and outside, most of it's getting done by 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 year old kids. I mean, in a very real sense, what is, what, what is happening in the learner community is a revolution. You know, what is happening is that the kids coming along now into our universities have been participating for the most part in self-paced learning from the time they got their first computer game. You know, they have three. They have a completely different mindset about what student-centered learning is. I don't know hardly anyone in the academy right now, you know, who understands that or, or, or has the, the basic experience, a shared experience 
that truly allows them to understand it. And my projection is that 10 years from now, if something really radical does happen in this learning and technology space, uh, when we look back, there's probably a 12 or 13-year-old kid sitting somewhere at home or, you know, getting ready to go to university or sitting in high school is going to be the one that invents it. Well, I agree. Getting back to Greg's point that the thing that will force those calculus courses to change will be the students. It's not going to be us providing any tool. Um, I don't agree. There's certain things that's the case. The calculus is not one. Yeah, okay. Um, it is true that, that, as is said on our campus, we're digital immigrants and they're, what's the other? Digital natives, right. Okay. Um, do we, but what, I, I, I have a hard time figuring out what that means as far as especially higher education, uh, maybe any education. Um, playing a game, there may be some ways in which they learn doing that. Is that the way we want learning to be? Um, is, is that learning? Is that learning? Right. Um, uh, when my kids pull down MP3s and interrupt my work um, on my, uh, you know, on, on the network, um, I don't. I don't know. Maybe I'm just getting crotchety. There's a strong. I think that there's a big difference between saying, yes, these are interesting and innovative technologies and kids are going to figure out ways to do interesting things with them. It's a huge leap then, though, to say that's going to determine the way we do education, right? And I, maybe I'm putting words in people's mouths, yes. but I don't want to um, allow that kind of uh, equality or that statement to simply stand, right? Uh, we'll learn from, uh, of course we have to learn from how people are uh, using their thumbs these days. Um, but at the same, and, and as, as those technologies are put into the environments that we have on campus, they will impact both the faculty and the students, right, and the way they see the services on campus. Um, and perhaps the systems that we put together like this act as enablers for dispersion of that kind of technology. Yeah, I, I, I was going to say something very similar to what Joseph said, which is to push back a little bit on what Greg said about about these systems being inherently conservative. Because no matter what happens, we have to have a we have to have a mechanism for assessing and granting credit for the experiences that our students go through. And it seems to me that what we really want in an enterprise system for handling this stuff, whatever we call it, is a way to present the digital realm of learning, however it's structured for the students, and a way of having the faculty be able to assess it and grant, grant credit for it through the institution and track that credit. And uh, hopefully that's neither conservative nor revolutionary, but allows us an evolutionary path to wherever we're going. 
I mean, I think your point is higher, edu- higher ed institutions are the ultimate conservative, well, next to the church, but the ultimate conservative uh, organizational structures around, but there are for good reasons for that. I and mean, the notion of planning for radical change somehow seems a little bit oxymoronic. Um, what we can do, I think, is think about the kinds of infrastructures that we care about that enable innovations to be built upon. And, and we can do that by doing the kinds of inner two uh, standards building and thinking about the component, componentized natures of, of these kinds of things. I mean, I think we've already uh, identified that the, the places that, that radical change are going to come from, like the browser or P2P or things like that, are, are likely unpredictable. And our best bet is to be able to build a structure that is, is best able to roll into the next phase as possible. And I think in that context, the, the sort of the conservative nature of the institution is well served by thinking about the infrastructures we have to run and recognize the dichotomy between the innovation that comes out of department discipline-based research and, and left field um, and, the, uh, and the need for us to be able to, to learn from that and then leverage it to build on the primary enterprise of knowledge building that we're into. Yeah. It's supposed to be provocative, you know. <laughs> sure. Uh, when I think of successful... Open source platform comes to mind, of course, is Apache. And I think one of the reasons that Apache is successful is because there's one of them. There's one Apache. Already, with open source course management system, we've got four, five, six, seven, it's growing all the time. I, there's, there's a group in California now that's going to band together to form another open source system. Realistically, Princeton isn't going to run Chef, and it's not going to run CourseWorks, it's not going to run any of these other course management systems. But it might run, or think about running, something like Apache, at least a core, a base, on which we could put other tools. When, when are we going to see, are we ever going to see, a real Apache equivalent open source course management system infrastructure? Want to see it again? We don't, obviously, we don't know. Uh, if you go back to the history of Apache, the name comes from there's a bunch of patches. There's a bunch of patches on an early NCSA server, uh, and at that time there were a bunch of servers, right? And immediately after, in that period where Apache started to grow, there were bunches of servers. If you go back to the um, the, the um, net server or whatever it was, right? Those things settled out, right? And there was one that was successful, and the community adopted, and it went and it went forward. Um, that probably will happen with the open CMS systems too, or or better with open what I would think of as open collaboration systems that allow for lots of things to be plugged into them and pedagogical tools are just one of them. Yeah, I think... Oh. No, go ahead. I think we don't have a framework to answer this question. I mean, the only framework sometimes used to be the Empire Strikes Back or doesn't strike back. <laughs> Other than that, so I, you know, I'd like to add to what Jack said. I think we have to look at an economic framework for a longer term. If you look at the corporate world, and I came from that the only company that's made a profit in the last 15 years is the University of Phoenix. Everything, Fathom and Pensari, Colas, Knowledge Universe, Saba, Digital Think, you know, they're all running buses. So first of all, there is, you know, nobody is making money in that area, which means that commercially it will be difficult to sustain things. Uh, the second thing, if you look at the, uh, the higher ed world, you know, we've been talking about this the last two days. We're all getting hit by you know, financial We're all getting hit. Can you hear me? Now, now. <laughs> In the higher end world, we're all getting hit by economic and budgetary constraints. 
and that will start to influence what we do. The third thing I think is that the, the people who are deciding on this, uh, you know, let, let me take a poll. How many of us in this room have gone through one complete online course and stayed with it? Good thing you didn't say two. <laughs> I'll tell you what, what my sense of the important question. A lot of the people who are deciding on things like this haven't experienced it. Now, whether I need to experience it to make a decision or not, I don't know. But I'm just throwing up something as an example. Uh, let, let me just qualify. Uh, the reason I ask the question is the systems that we built at the University of Michigan were not exclusively for supportive distance education. They were, support, they were there to support classic proscenium classes in which people met face-to-face -face once, two, three, four, five times a week. And it was uh, online support for that kind of thing. So the question of um, people not, you know, never taking an online course from beginning to end. I don't, I, a, I'm not sure what a correct answer to it would be. Uh, and B, I'm not sure that it, that it, it is a uh, distinguisher right, for a lot of the things that you're talking about. Just, just want to extend Orrin's uh, comment about uh, the AI portal, in which Barry Walsh made this statement that I thought was interesting. He doesn't want to do any business with an ERP company. Any, word, any company with the word enterprise, you want to do business with small companies that have expertise in a very specific area inside an infinite. So if you take Jack's comments and you extend it, it's likely going to be a small company. And I was thinking, Barry, when he learns about direct-to-learn in the University of Wisconsin, will probably be very pleased to have that example of what the new companies will look like. And notice that those new companies can absorb open source. Now, we're watching SCT, which of course has Uportal now. And it's interesting that SCT has made no effort to extend Uportal. What they have done is made a very positive effort to use Uportal and to contribute to it. So I think the model you're going to see is two very narrow companies that focus on one particular area because the principles are very good in their feet. And the second is you're going to find some companies like FCT, which are going to make some tough management decisions to take several quarters of lower profits in order to incorporate open source. I think uh, speaking to the Princeton comment, and I guess to Jeff's earlier, uh, yesterday I phrased the, the notion of is code mobility essential for our economic and innovative future? And I think it's important to distinguish between what code mobility means versus I'm going to go pick up a shrink wrap application from Stanford and just plug it in with no changes at Indiana. That would be wonderful, and I think maybe the top tool that Jeff demonstrated yesterday, and there's some things that are going to happen on the innovation frontier that we may be able to pick up wholesale, bring into Indiana that I would never fund the development of because I don't have time to do those kinds of things, and those are going to be wonderful. But in the collaboration we have with Michigan, we and Stanford at the moment, we're working on code mobility of core functionality. At Indiana, our faculty already have an interface called OnCourse, and for God love it or God hate it, they don't have to use it, and if we start jerking that around a whole lot, we're going to have an uprising on our hands. Joseph's faculty already has an interface in course tools that works very well for them. The code mobility that we're working on does not include hard coding that interface and moving a shrink wrap product among these universities. It's that core functionality that I bring from Michigan or import from Michigan or send to Stanford or bring from MIT 
that saves me a tremendous economic cost, and then I still work at the interface layer for things that are unique to what I need to do at Indiana University. So this is to Jeff's point, it's not only commercial or shrink wrap, but there are shades of gray in food mobility that are both important to support our economic and innovation future. First, I'm going to agree, yes, that innovation is not anybody's sacred domain, and we want to take advantage of it. Uh, getting to Jack's point, I think the important question is where we in higher education want to innovate. There's going to be CS research and technical research, but I'm assuming that a lot of our conversation around CMSs and education applications is about education innovation. Right? And, uh, I'm also going to assert that it's useful to collaborate in that education innovation realm for higher education, and that's a sector, the higher education sector would have to collaborate uh, for, hiring, for innovation that's useful in higher education. Uh, the provocative part to respond to your <laughs> need for provocation over here is that it's collaboration for uh, innovation like this requires both a technical framework, which you typically don't have, you know, some, uh, and collaboration is tough. I mean, if you look at Howard's presentation yesterday on ICOMS and trying to get these things together, all what we experienced in, in uh, OKI itself, there's a technical dimension, having a framework, having a technical language around which you can collaborate, and that's what Brad just pointed out, you know, the important part. But the, there's the social-political part. You know. I think, uh, uh, you know, respect here, uh, we know as a higher education community to get together and identify common problems. We have tremendous difficulty getting together to uh, implement common solutions. I mean, I think that that's sort of where the challenge is, and I'm, I'm not sure whether it's done in large groups, small groups, similar institutions, people who have common problems, but I think that's the big barrier that we need to cross. Go to the last question, which has already been touched upon, I think. And that's, what about five years from now, are we gonna, we, we've talked a lot, this, there was a lot of this mentioned before, but maybe we should address it a little bit more now. Um, for, through the panel and then out to the audience again. Want to start over? In some ways, I look back on where we were five years ago, you know, and I think, geez, we haven't made any progress, and then, but yet things look really different in, in some areas. So it's really hard to say where we're going to make progress and where we won't. But I think more and more we're going to be seeing the convergence of all these different clouds of things that we now consider disparate systems, right? The CMS, the student system, the digital repository, the library system. I mean, they're all sort of crowding together into the same space, and we're going to make progress on figuring out ways to integrate them and make them work together, aside from, you know, nightly transfers of batch files, which we're all probably really getting to the ragged edge of, of functionality on. And, and so, you know, I hope where we'll be five years from now is we'll have a set of working, open, you know, well-defined, well-understood interfaces between all those things that we're really starting to make progress on taking advantage of. I, and I, I don't think we should hope for any more than that. I think uh, we as technologists will probably still be talking about it because it just gives us a, an easy framework in which to talk about the tools. 
but I think that the faculty and the students will no longer recognize it as a CMS, that it will be integrated, it's going to be transparent, and it's just going to be part of the everyday goings on of teaching. Um, and they're not going to say, oh, I have to use the CMS, and then I have to go over to the people's office and, and do that kind of thing. But I still, I see the worth in having some framework in which to talk about the technology and about how we put that all together. Jack and um, uh, Phil in the back, and, and Bobby speak, uh, alluded to um, the market forces. And, um, uh, and, and I think the word commoditization came up. And this is something we've, we've been talking about um, a lot. I, I think one of the problems with um, this particular marketplace right now is, is, that, is that there really is very little commoditization. Jack uh, 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 alluding to it. Uh, right, right now, if you're, a, if you're a CMS vendor, you have a product that you have sort of limited, uh, limited customers. How uh, can they increase that customer base? And that, that, that's a tough thing. Um, I think this is one area, the educational technology is one area where, where, we, where we really try to turn around and, and think about true commoditization, where, where, where vendors can sell products to individuals rather than institutions. Um, and then think about what we need to do to get to that place. And, 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 and so somebody from the European Union, I know, was talking to me about OKI a while back. So, um, one of the beauties of, of this model is, is, is that if I'm a faculty member and I move from, from MIT to, uh, to Wisconsin, uh, could I take my tools with me and know they're going to run in Wisconsin? Um, and, and, and that's sort of a, a, a vision. And right now, the state of the, the, the art State of the technology choice, getting back to you know supporting client apps, supporting web apps and all that sort of thing, it's very difficult for, for a faculty member who's at an institution where maybe they're running WebCT to say, wow, I really like this feature at Blackboard. I want to install that. Uh, you, 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 you can't do it. And, and, and we need to get to a place where we can. And I think the big part of this you know, gets back to gets back to uh, specifications and standards. Um, we need to be in a place as IT professionals where, where we can sort of know that there are products out there that we can put a standard approval on. So yeah, it uses TCPIP, that's good. It uses um, uh, authentication in this way. It uses, it does authorization in this way. These are all things that are good and we can put standard approval and say, if you buy any one of these products, it will work in our environment. And, uh, and I think that's where we, 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 we need to be. We need to think about commoditization of the learning uh, rather than what we have now. Yeah, I would agree with all that. Um, the part of the question says, will we be talking about CMSs five years from now? We'll certainly be talking about pedagogy and how our institutions work and how to get the latest uh, handheld device or uh, ear-held device or whatever into the system. Um, and yes, there's going to be convergence and uh, portals and CMS systems are converging now and it's hard to tell one from another at times. But what we'll be talking about five years from now probably will have much more to do with, uh, I, I, I'm going to hope, uh, will have much more to do with the domains themselves. Uh, we'll be talking about um, the ontologies that have to do with pedagogy in the areas that we're interested in and how we support those through our IT systems. Uh, what is this, uh, by that time probably uh, we'll have RDF servers 
and the act is already acting page servers that are working in our institutions, and people will look upon the web as something that you query with questions and get an answer back from, rather than just a list of pages, a bunch of stuff. And we'll be trying to figure out what that means in a distributed world of semantic web services for the kinds of stuff that we're doing. A comment to reinforce and, and appreciate a lot that's been said. First of all, Jack, I think the market is too thin. It is an important comment for us to retain. Several people have commented on small companies innovating in small spaces. Uh, I think that makes a tremendous amount of sense. We have to retain the right to craft the tools that affect our program. That's the first principle. We're going to be in charge of those things that make a difference for teaching and learning and that where there is a cutting edge change, whether it's driven by the students or by faculty or by anyone else. But those things that aren't affecting our program become commodity. And it's in our interest to commoditize those, to buy them commercially if possible, possibly from smaller companies, but in ways that are extensible. So there is a second principle that those commercial pieces need to be extensible. The other comment that was made is, you know, our vendors don't want to customize to our particular needs. And we also have a personality problem in higher education. So leave that one to us. So somehow give the vendors the ability to build the core, and we can build on top of that. I think all of that is, is really quite good. And if you think back 15 years ago, we were talking about networking and email. And we had these same issues. We're simply reprising that sort of maturation of, of situations. And today, you can buy mail order stuff that actually works with IP. But you remember in the old days, we had interoperability for IP. Now we're talking about it for CMS. So that's a good news. Now, we could get there accidentally. But to me, the thing that's exciting about OKI and open source is that we're taking an intentional approach to trying to craft that sort of a future. And while that might have happened accidentally in the marketplace, I personally think it's much more likely to happen with some guidance. And I think that, that collectively, our institutions, several of you and others, are providing that kind of guidance, and I celebrate that and welcome it. So I think that's all good, and we're, we're starting down a path. The other thread that I've heard discussed is not a CMS thread at all, but it's rather this, this other question about, and by the way, higher ed is increasingly at risk for a complete restructuring, and where's it gonna come from? And on that side, I've heard it might come from our customers, the students, reorganizing us. On the other hand, we've also heard the point that we've been here for 300 years, and we ought to be careful to toss the wisdom out the window uh, without thinking about it. And my personal view is we need to somehow get a process that will work those two together. But the CMS is not going to do it. It goes to the questions of governance. It goes to the questions of institutional thinking. We're all playing. Phoenix University is definitely out there trying to reinvent the future in which we're going we're to be a receiver instead of a driver. All of that's good stuff. But that's not part of the CMS discussion per se. I just hear us constantly kind of coming back to that and saying, is the CMS in the way? And we need to make sure that it isn't. Yeah. Um, I, I'm late to the party, so I apologize that you covered all this yesterday. But uh, we discovered at UT that we're running an inadvertent experiment on course management systems. We've got at least six of them. Uh, <laughs> and we only have five yesterday. 
so, you know, that's interesting. But among the feedback we, we get from students is that our institution isn't putting enough energy into training the faculty on how to use any of this stuff. So there is no particular positive expectation when a student goes into a course at UT that uses our state-of-the-art $50,000 classroom consoles and Blackboard or and WebCT that they expect uh, a positive, a more positive, more productive, more innovative educational experience than, uh, than the chalkboard experience they had last semester. That we don't do a good enough job training, we don't do enough, a good enough job assessing uh, what, what works. The, uh, and we, we advise them that the tools we have are incredibly primitive as regards who's doing what. So we have dramatically more clicks hitting our Blackboard server, dramatically more user IDs registered in Blackboard. We haven't got clue one on what instructors are actually doing with which functions and features of Blackboard, with which courses, uh, to what outcomes. We'll be talking about that five years <laughs> Whatever it is that we're working on, the questions of assessment, questions of, of uh, what is the technology, is the technology helping or is it hurting, that, that will certainly be talked about. I, I had that problem, I mean, as, uh, last week as I was filling out Frank's survey, it's like, how do we know what to count that is meaningful about what we're doing? We have to find things we can measure some way, qualitative, quantitative, when I mean, we have to be able to say, here's what we've done and you know, it's been a good expenditure of our effort or it hasn't, but how do we know what those are? We're still at a very early stage there. Uh, Dan's comment about counting the clicks, there is one institution who knows exactly how this is done, and that's University of Phoenix, because they have an evaluation unit that studies exactly how students use it. Now, remember that they have a homogeneous student body by age and interest and so forth, so it's very homogeneous. They have only one purpose, and innovation is not one of their purposes. The other one is Open University, and David and I during the break were talking about how his slide matched what they learned at Yale, matched what Open University had learned from their own experience. But David had an interesting suggestion that I think this group might want to think about, and that is thinking of a course assessment that's done on a course basis that matches course performance against the student characteristics and how they use the course as something that's very imperative to move forward and that's beyond the current CMS. So perhaps the innovation ought to be in connecting the pedagogy with the results. I agree completely. One of the things that um, you built into the chef, if you go to the chef site and see that it's a tool for teaching and research and for studying teaching and research. And the School of Information folks that are working with us are in, you know, working on precisely that, uh, figuring out how do we look at the laws, how do we track that against student evaluations, how do we track that against performance and classes, those kinds of things. And I think a lot of that will come out in the next couple of years, too. Have they published anything yet? Not yet. Not yet. We're still in. We're not in full release yet. Okay. More comments? I think one thing I'll, I'll say, a couple comments. One is, I think in a, in a similar context to this discussion last year sometime, I heard Dan up the Grove say that, you know, compared to the kind of investments we've made on our campuses in the big ERP systems, you know, we have not spent very much money on this kind of 
yeah, these kinds of applications. And um, you know, I don't think the multi-million-dollar single vendor investment is, is the way to go. But it would be nice to see some increased investment and visibility of the pedagogical applications uh, at our campus. And maybe now that we're reaching the end of doing ERP, we can get into in, into more of that as you know, with the with the next economic cycle. The, the other thing I wanted to say is, you know. We're going to see a whole new generation of faculty, in addition to a whole new generation of students, come in. And that new generation of faculty will, to some extent, have grown up much more with the digital, you know, being the digital natives than, than the current generation of faculty. And that's going to occasion a whole new um, shift in the, way, in the way they teach and in what they expect to have available to them. Uh, as tools for teaching, and, and that's going to drive us in whole new directions we haven't thought about yet. Um, I wanted to follow up with that, with uh, on investment in research in this area. I'm thinking of someone like Diane Moylard from the UK, uh, published widely and is a commentary on this and she talks about how we've, we've actually developed pedagogically useful technology approaches and then the technology switches and we lose those techniques yet we sort of know what works there um, but we and with this next generation of faculty coming in perhaps invigorated by some real research and some real lessons learned about what does or doesn't, uh, that can drive what way we go with the technology instead of the other way around. So I'm hoping that in five years that while we'll still be talking about these tools and, and how they fit, that the discussion will shift to one that's more being driven by the uh, needs of the instruction rather than can we just make this technology uh, work. And well, I'm not, I'm not convinced that educational research has ever had much of an impact on the way teaching is done in our institutions. Yeah, so, so it might be a puncture. But, uh, but uh, again, I hope, I hope that um, we can see a shift there, but I, still, I think we'll still be talking about it. Um, yeah, I think it might be interesting if the XMS uh, five years from now uh, also looks at the training that happens in our institutions. The human resource, financial, IT, you know, there's a whole lot of training that we as people work there and faculty go through. Um, and what, many of the issues, economic, pedagogic, uh, sustainability, are very similar to the educational application of the And that could be a way of uh, you know, making it more economically viable and getting more people in, in there. Just another comment about I think uh, monetization is already occurring. Uh, when I saw one of the slides that said that you had a scoring viewer at the University of Cambridge, yeah. of course, I'm immediately going to go to Cambridge next week to find out what that is. Or you take the U Portal's uh, view of OCW. Think about the possibility of someone just getting direct access to the MIT materials through that So what you do is get that. The second has to do with the, with the incentives. And I was thinking about all learn talking about video and, and the way the video PowerPoint and the person put together. Simple, not terribly expensive, and yet that could become the standard so that you will no 
longer be able just to throw up a couple of uh, pages and say this is a course. What you're actually going to have to do is do something equivalent to that. So now I'm a faculty member who does all learn. When they go back in the classroom or group, are they ever going to do anything less than all learn? And the answer is going to be no. So this is sort of going to ratchet up in terms of the quality of the presentation. Now the question is, what measures do you use? And uh, in the undergraduate curriculum published uh, Chelsea Bass, there's this matter of research about whether you use retention and student success in courses and show what sort of factors make, make a difference. And that's important because retention with a good course can go up as much as 20%. We're talking about community colleges, not research colleges. And that's significant. I just wanted to observe that five years is a very short period in which to expect any important change in higher education. I know some years back when I was uh, active in this field, people used to say there will be real change in pedagogy when the Nintendo generation becomes department chairpersons. And at least at Cornell, I don't think that's happened yet. Which one? The Nintendo generation as department chair? Yes. Yeah, yeah the, the Nintendo generation is still not. Yeah, so where are they now? They're, they're like. They're, they're coming along. So they're in graduate school now, right? Right, and I also remember hearing Jack McCready once say something. Jack may want to correct me if I remember it wrong, that there's an important innovation in technology. Uh, time from the early adopters to becoming an industry-wide application is about 10 years. So if, I mean, if this OKI common frame, extensible framework notion is important and successful, then everyone will be using it 10 years from now, Jack, tracking of <laughs> uh, the rate of technology change was that was approximately right. I'm always late. I always only work yeah. for the first approximation. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Kevin. Meanwhile, we have some developers to support. That's why I want to just do this. Have the Palm generation leadership role. How long? I mean, how long do you think that will take? Yes, the number I've, I've heard is, is in fact 30 years. And, and Supposedly, it works pretty well if you look back across, you know, electricity and cars and the printing press and, and all that stuff. And, and it's you know, basically based on the, the time it takes for the people who aren't familiar with it to die off. So, <laughs> so, so, my, my comment is actually uh, probably self-serving, but uh, I, I guess one observation uh, as, a, uh, as an infrastructure guy that I take out of all this discussion is that what people see when they look at this uh, thing that they call CNS is, in fact, a whole bunch of, uh, of reliance on, on infrastructure more than, more than CNS is typically do today. You know, the course lists and the authentication and the, and the you know the the, the web the web application infrastructure um, and. Um, and also turning those services that it provides into infrastructure that's supported in a, you know, in a, in a, in a services kind of way, as opposed to uh, monolithic, um, and and that's all that's all good. I, on the other hand, um, 
infrastructure out of my institution, I see only more pressure on, on us infrastructure supporters and and lack of, of FTE there, lack of clue. Um, so saying that we're going to turn a whole bunch more stuff into infrastructure and rely on even more makes me nervous. Um, um, yeah, so I, I, I think we have to get better at that, too, uh, in, in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, we're certainly trying to put a little, a little effort into how we support developers using components, using those services, uh, uh, and you know, supporting that across a broader range of developers and a you know, broader range of, of, of interests. Um,
something, that it's actually okay <laughs> to do lots of different things to then get together and figure out, well, what worked, what didn't, and how can we try and begin to create some order? Right, and I think that's exactly where we are. Um, uh, even with you know, OKI, where we're trying to create order, we're, we're very excited about the fact that there are indeed four different traditional CMSs being written against it. Even if we are quite at the point where we can share components between those, we're getting the exercise. Uh, that's extremely important. One thing I've noticed at Stanford, and just recently, is that the faculty are saying, why are we running our own locally in the department? And why can't we leverage more of the infrastructure and, and not complicate this? And it's the local IT people that are driving it rather than the faculty saying, well, we have to control it. Um, we have to run it locally. And we need to get them past that because the faculty are saying, I want to I wanna be able to collaborate across this stuff. I don't want to have my own department. I really question whether we need four, six, or seven implementations of common services layers, of, of seven different implementations of opening a file or reading a file. Um, and I'm just wondering, I mean, it seems to me that the institutions that are implementing open source versions of, of the OPI APIs, at least a little level APIs, it seems to me that they would do the rest of us a real favor if they talked to each other, got together, and possibly developed some commonality in their implementations. I think it would make the support um, structure much, much simpler to implement, so that there is a, a common implementation, at least at the base level, and there's a set of people who know about that implementation and are prepared to support it. I use the word implementation very precisely. You're talking about the, the, the CMS applications and so on. about the actual code that implements the, the API, that implements the interfaces, the Java interfaces, oh, for the yeah. common services. But, but as far as I see, there's no, each school is doing that independently of the other. And I'm just wondering why that is the case. Are, are well, these, part, part of the design is, 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 you know, why do we care? That at the at the, at the, the OKI at the implementation level below the interface, right? Well, why do we care if there's a whole bunch of activity? No, I'm just saying if there's a common implementation of, of the file layer, if you will, then he gives us a, he, he gives us a standard for that. Right? I mean, we have the, and you've written your own code, so you have to support it. Right, and code. there's good reasons for that. Um, that's because some people work in Perl, some people work in Java, some people work in something else, right? And if, if, if you can tell, if you can have a blank slate and say, okay, your history with struts or your history with um, uh, ASP or whatever, right? Forget it, right? You, you tell, you know, then you would tell them, okay, what is the implementation uh, that you think is best, and they would have to go do it. Mean, that, that's not going to happen, right? I mean, what, we, what we're trying to do is find the places in which we have enough commonality, that we can get a common approach to something. And there is another, I mean, that, that's how I feel, so that, that's what I think about. You're just not, you're going to have, you have a lot of different histories, you have a lot of different advantages of different types of things. Perl's great for one thing, it's not for another. Job is great for another, one thing, it's not for another. Having systems that are built on those um, have advantages and disadvantages, right? We have to be able to figure out how they can work together and not worry about what's under the hood. I, I don't care what's behind my steering wheel when I turn the key. No, no, there's a different, a different direction we can go with that. For instance, we, 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 we shouldn't necessarily have 
multiple limitations of, of uh, multiple X509 certificate implementations of authentication. You know, if one person writes it, why we do it? Right? But where we are in an environment where a lot of us are using different authentication systems. So Notice this code, you have to use Apache example. <laughs> Virtually everybody here who does soap uses Apache soap. So uh, the question whether it's uh, Perl or, or Java is not the issue. What happens if you've got six systems with that Java? The question is, are they common? Yeah. And notice how he's going back to that argument of Apache. That's implicit in your discussion. Well, I think what I'm trying to get at is things like Apache modules do interoperate anywhere well because there's a common Apache code base that they can talk to, and there's a common Apache implementation. My question is, is there, are we confident that with widely varying implementations of the API base layers that these tools are really, I think, I think we're underestimating the difficulty of building interoperable tools if we don't have a common infrastructure, not just an API description, but an actual common implementation of the base layer. No, I'm afraid we can't get there. Right, and I'm, I'm, I'm hoping we can. I think that, that there are ways in which we can um, overcome some of the difficulties that we've got now. Right? I, don't, I don't know if we're going to get to the point where, as Brad said, you can simply take something from one schools and drop it in. But I think we'll get close. And I think in the next couple of years, we'll be able to do a whole lot. I think I've talked about different things. Yeah. Well, the, last, the last comments here now for three. So there are a couple people that have their hands up before. Well, I was I was going to agree with you, and then you said something else, which oh, <laughs> <laughs> I was going to agree with you on that. Yeah, for the things like filing and logging and these common services, there will probably shake out to being one implementation that most people use. If you have basic reference implementations for filing that just use the basic file system, but you could also choose to use the implementation that uses an Oracle database to put the files. And so that level of interoperability uh, or common, you know, part of the, uh, we've got this abstraction layer and these common service definitions. And once somebody produces one, other people should be able to share that if it fits their institutional infrastructure. And for a lot of the common services, database file, um, the implementations that we're producing now will suit 90% of institutions. So there I was agreeing with you. But then when you said that um, uh, you didn't think that that was your continuation seems to say that that wouldn't work. Or no, I'm just saying that was necessary to make it follow. And there, I think, it remains to be proven, but that's the idea, is that it doesn't matter that we're all using the same filing API implementation, as long as we're using the same filing API. I, I think it's a common filing API implementation. I agree with you. It isn't so much that the tools won't work if you have different implementations. Everybody's really followed the API. By the way, I think that's very, very hard to do. But the real advantage is in terms of support. That if we all have, if there is a common implementation, then each institution doesn't have to have its own dedicated staff of support people that are supporting their implementation. In the same way as I come back to the Apache example, because there is a common implementation, you can go to a common group that is able to support that structure. So it's, it's really more a question of, of making it supportable and viable across a large set of institutions. 
challenge the assumption that you really could get to a point where the support staff could be shrunk or outsourced or somehow become so common as to not be deeply personally interesting. And I also challenge Joseph, your comment, you don't care how your steering wheel works. I know, that was a little... I, that's a little I, I think you care deeply whether it's racket, pinion, power, how big your wheels are, or whether you want a land yacht, or whether you want a snappy speedster. Where are we arguing? Say, 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 say all about it, and we'll agree. Okay. <laughs> I care deeply about those issues. <laughs> Unfortunately, I lose that analogy. I mean, it, you know, whether it's a catamaran or how long it is, I guess it's the same thing. Sailboat. It's not catamaran. <laughs> 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 we won't get into religious discussion. <laughs> okay, well, we, we had a very nice discussion about 20 of you participated. That's great. And uh, thanks to everybody for participating. And uh, having this very successful session. Chuck is on now with the closing comments. The good news is I think my closing comments are becoming more and more superfluous. All we have are questions. Can we all agree? Yes. I would like to be able to summarize later on what exactly we're up to here in the hidden workshop. So I took Frank's original PowerPoint notes and added kind of a running dialogue of the questions and issues that came up during this last session, which I hope are very, very informative. And I, someone or any of you all can help me shorten this down into a 10 or 15 minute soundbite. I would be wherever in your deck. But that may turn out to be undoable as well. Let me see. These are the ones that Mike started off with last evening as we closed out. And I'd like to then remind you all to see if they still stand the test of time in this very informative roundtable session that was at the end here. I'm going to go through these fairly quickly, assuming that most of you have seen them already. And I did take out the snark story because I'm not exactly the same as Frank and uh, never did memorize it, although I find it quite interesting. This one in particular I'd like to challenge. I mean, we're talking about revolution on several levels. Is there a revolution in pedagogy coming? Is there a revolution in how our institutions do business? Is there a revolution in the technology? Is there a revolution coming in the infrastructure? And it's always dangerous to say this is the one critical time, but certainly we have some key issues coming.
this one I love because it's one practically facing us today, but that's okay. That's just selfish little me. Here are the ones that I captured from the round table. And if I misstated them or they're not clear, or you can help me shorten them down to a smaller number, your assistance is greatly appreciated. Comments in general, welcome at any point. Has student-centered learning ever taken hold, that one? Should it ever? Will it ever? Should it ever? That's another interesting question in and of itself. Notice we couldn't even get by the fifth one, which is calculus has to be taught, or does it, or Frank asserted there's a debate. Brad? Uh, experience reinforces what you said. 
if you get the group of developers together in the same room once or twice, then they begin to allocate who does what. And so you don't have the duplication that you otherwise would get. So that's the good news. The bad news is that this doesn't happen easily. And let me give you the example which I'm currently working on that no success whatsoever. Florida is building a transcript, electronic transcript exchange system. California Community College is building one. And the University of Texas has the uh, central server. Because of travel restrictions, the three groups have never, ever met together. So consequently, there's no sort of this, this combination. So I think that what we ought to do is think about how can we cause this to happen. Now, Joe is, is, has asked, uh, let's get together and talk about how you present materials to a, uh, uh, you know, the CMS materials. And you're participating. I think that that's exceptionally good. I hope that, that all the people that are there who are making those kinds of contributions. So you might want to focus on how do you get these people together to develop that sort of internal uh, allocation of resources. The same thing happens at Apache, it's somewhat more formal uh, method. Well, we don't have that me mechanism, or, or we have a history of doing it in some things and not in others. somehow more Apache-like as a model of success? Or is that the wrong way to ask the question? Which group are you? That's an interesting question in and of itself. Who would be included or disincluded? Well, OKI is attempting to do that. <laughs> Will you tell me? You don't think so? Is, is OKI supporting a common? I mean, Apache is a, is a single piece of code. OKI is at the interface level, and I take your point on that, search, but I think that the description that's been made previously is that code bases will become accepted, uh, will emerge and become the common practice over time, so that my own reaction is I don't think it's wrong to let a few uh, implementations go out and see what the differences are and why there are differences. The other thing is, I don't think people really do want to rewrite things if they can find that what they want does exist. It does happen some of the time, but with a well-publicized, widely known uh, operation like OKI, I think that's less likely. I didn't like to challenge the statement that Apache is a single piece of code because Apache is now taking on the web server portion, the Tomcat portion, the jet speed portion, and they're no longer as monolithic as you'd like to portray them as in some sense. Which part of the Apache foundation are you talking about when you say it's just one big block no, of code? No, web server. I mean, there are many pieces of code, but there are. 13 different versions of each piece of code that makes up a patch. That's what I say. Okay. I can go to one place and download the version of the patch I want, and then a lot of optional modules. Uh, I agree. I mean, I think letting a thousand flowers blossoms and whatever is, is for a time is, is wonderful, but 
I'm just wondering if it might be helpful if both guys at some level encouraged some common development, particularly from the point of view of institutions who might be considering at some point moving to, to an open source system and, and might have an option to move to a, a more sort of commonly supported open source system rather than having to think about, well, maybe we'll talk to Michigan, maybe we'll talk to Stanford, maybe we'll talk to whatever institution we happen to want to talk to, or maybe we'll get a bunch of developers together and roll our own and build our own implementation yet again of, of this API. Um, nothing to say about that. OPI is not an organization of critics. OK. So, uh, okay. Well, maybe it should be, I guess. It's the right. Yeah. Yeah. That's something we're struggling with right now. There's some efforts on the way to, to assess OPI to help understand what are the next, uh, what are the efforts we need to be putting resources in, what are community building efforts, or, or, or spend maintenance efforts. There's a lot of aspects of where we go from now, Because our institutions are really different 
Um, but it's just interesting in, in many of these co-sharing opportunities, it's usually a giving and not a taking. So I will be very interested to see. This is pertinent to, to uh, uh, comment Andy's comment yesterday and, and others. It, it will be interesting to see the next time we talk about this, someone saying, I actually took other people's things and put them together <coughs> rather than just providing them to others. I think a lot of that yeah. might be just the status of the infrastructure at a given time, because I think that one of the things that we did try really hard recently, which is a really simple one, is the whole web office stuff, right? And so, you know, we we actually threw in with Washington and did the club cookie stuff, and a lot of people, I think, have done that, but the chaos stuff has come along, so now there are a couple... But at least if it's something that we can try, I mean, our argument for years has been at least if, if we can clump a little bit instead of having everybody doing their own thing, at least there might be, okay, well, there's people doing this and people doing that, and then if we can, you know, try and reduce those numbers and get to the point where maybe we'll really understand that there is one best way and we can go that way, but... But I think I, there are actually people who've done it. There are a lot of people who've just sort of out of blue, I think, picked up chaos and done it. I don't know that we've done a whole lot of sales on that. But several places in this room have rolled around without sales. Exactly. Yeah. Even in that Exactly. Including me. <laughs> but there are also examples. Kermit, Rosea, there are all kinds of things that came out of Gerber. Gerber. Yeah. One of the problems has been that sometimes the thing being shared isn't of the right size or the right modularity. Okay, I, I, what I was saying was not a value judgment anyway. It was an observation. So I, I think that having things be, having enough standards to be able to carve things out into small modules that I, I think that's true. Particularly, I'm thinking particularly of the difference between OKI and something like Chan, where that's being approached completely differently. You're talking about an actual piece of code, common common code base, and share for a calendaring system. That's a relatively discrete thing, just like Apache is a relatively discrete thing. Of course, management systems are such huge things. I don't think all of us in this room even agree on what the common components of the course management system are or could be. And I think that poses some. some I was just going to throw in a completely different uh, observation. Uh, it appears to us sitting here listening to all this and about whether you're developing a lot of the conversation is about modules for sort of systems related things. And the observation I had from yesterday was that the pieces the systems that we saw that were driven by faculty input as sort of a primary kind of thing came out very different than any of the commercial systems. And, and that should be telling us something about where we should also be looking at modularity and what the pieces are and how these things should maybe auto evolve in the future. I was going to say, I, I think the point is well stated that our ability to receive code rather than send, send code elsewhere, but uh, at, at Indiana, we've really philosophically made a shift. And uh, you know, by the next meeting, I guess you really can see if the purchase is threading or not. Uh, in picking up CAS from Yale, uh, Michigan is ahead of us in building their next generation course management system. So there are big pieces of that that we are going to bring in wholesale. And I'm going to fight a lightsaber against you know people who want to start tinkering with that a whole lot because we ultimately, again, negate the economic bet of doing that. Our need for quizzing and testing uh, tools is a bit more aggressive than what Joseph's needs are. So our attention is there with Stanford 
and we will probably, I think most likely, implement that a little bit ahead of these guys. And then I suspect Joseph is going to want to pick that up wholesale and bring that in. His research tool that you saw him demonstrate yesterday, we are without anything as a uniform collaboration research tool across the university right now. I want to go and find out what it's going to take, take what they've done, and bring it in wholesale. And I think it's really going to take just a lot of commitment from the senior leadership, you know, to keep the tinkering down to make this work. And with the innovation space continuing to expand, at least as I perceive it, in every direction, and state budgets not going at the same pace, uh, we really have no alternative. So we have to lead. We have to lead effectively in doing this, or we're going to kill ourselves. And that's why I think the OKI service implementations and such provide us with the, the Lego-like connectors to be able to do that. Because in the past, we, we just could not have done it without some common services. We've got about one more. Yep. Last slide. We've got about four minutes before lunch. But I'm happy to hear anything you have about summarizing. So. You guess what? Who include one one community or set, set of areas that we really just talked a lot about? Joseph referenced was you know, the researchers and the things that occur in the disciplines and not necessarily institutional levels. And so, not to lose sight of it, the physicists and astronomers and genomic researchers are also developing some of their own tools in space. Some of which are involved in campus infrastructure levels, some aren't. So, if you're talking about you know reviewing this at the next meeting or so forth, we might want to make sure we that tapped into the things that they're doing in terms of web, web, web lecture objects and so forth, and other sort of more discipline-affiliated research committee efforts than just institutional. Because that brings up issues of interinstitutional trust and other kind of things that will emerge probably more also in our discussions in the future. The last CSD uh, was on uh, visual repositories, and, uh, and it, it pointed to a lot of connections to this CSD topic. And I think it's uh, very important to sort of uh, uh, sometimes uh, sooner rather than later be able to talk about uh, this infrastructure for education, which includes these things together, so, so that you can have a have a look across these systems because they do constitute important elements of what we're trying to build. The visual repositories, the course and learning management applications, frameworks like this, and be able to look at it uh, collectively and look at the intersections. Last thing I'd like to do is, if we could all, uh, once again, give a round of applause to all the presenters and the discussants. And I don't know whether Charles or Gavin have any things they need to say before I... I'm going to go and grab the out there for the steering committee. And I think we're off to lunch. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.